Well, it is so good to have you here today. And those of you online, want to thank you for joining us today, as well as those at our Skagit campus. It was great being with you last weekend for the Discover Cornwall time and to meet several of you. And for those of you in Belize, we're excited this morning. We have eight of our brothers and sisters getting baptized in Belize this morning. And so very, uh, very excited about what God is doing in their midst. Uh, so we rejoice uh, with you and pray for you in that. About two months ago, 77 degrees, we were in there in entering into an unprecedented warm and dry fall. At that point, we would not see rain for at least another month and a half. And we started this journey looking at the life and the times of Joshua, not necessarily just going through the book of Joshua, but looking at his life. And started even before the promised land. That here was this, this little boy that was born as a slave, two slaves in Egypt. And his parents raised him and and he experienced the very first Passover. And since he was the first son of his parents, his life was spared because of the Passover. Because his parents trusted in the blood that was put over the doorpost and his life was, was spared. He experienced walking through the Red Sea, probably as a 20-something-year-old man. And then over the time, he's uh, gone through all of these different experiences. And if you did a, a word association with his name, many people would think the name Joshua and think of words like strong and courageous, primarily because three times in Joshua chapter one, he's instructed to be strong and courageous. And he was. And maybe it would be the thought of a, being a, a national leader because he took over from Moses and he led them into the promised land or his military conquest of, of, of the promised land or, or maybe it was even his obedience, which he was, uh, his, his integrity, his fidelity, his faithfulness to God. But my guess is if you hear the name Joshua, rarely would you use the word association of the word faith or prayer. And when we think about prayer in people of Scripture, we think about Elijah who prayed and, you know, and the, and the, and the rain stopped for three, three years. Or we think about the, the, the name Daniel who prayed and the, and the lion's mouths were shut. Or Hannah who prayed and her womb was opened. Or maybe the prayer of Jabez because of a book we read years ago. Or maybe the prayers of David that are listed throughout the book of Psalms. But I would suggest that Joshua should be listed in the who's who's of great prayers of the Old Testament. That he was a, a man of incredibly big faith and would pray a big prayer and see God do an incredible thing. And that's what we'll look at today. Now, early on in his life, he became like the personal assistant to Moses. And it could have been that Moses saw something in his life, something in his character, something in his spirit that drew him to him. He knew there was something about this young man. And he was kind of brought to the top. In fact, when Moses selected 12 men to go and, and explore the land that they were going into, Joshua would be one of them. And as we saw eight weeks ago, it was in this time when, when Joshua is given his name in Numbers chapter 13, verse 16, it says, these are the names of the men Moses sent to explore the land. Moses gave Hoshea, son of Nun, the name Joshua. Joshua was not the name his parents gave him. He was born in slavery in Egypt, and they gave him the name Hosea, which was probably a hope, a wish, a dream, a prayer. Hosea means salvation, and they were hoping that someday there would be salvation from this bondage, from this captivity, from this slavery that their people had experienced for 400 years. But Moses gives him a different name, similar but different. 
And it wasn't just a nickname. It was a significant name. Not Hosea, but Yehoshua or Joshua, which as we talked about two months ago means Yahweh is salvation. As a constant reminder to him that anytime there was a victory, anytime there was a deliverance, anytime there was any source of salvation, it was because of Yahweh, not because of what Joshua had done, not because of the strength of the people, not because of his intelligence or wisdom, but because Yahweh was doing this, was providing for them. Now, I don't know when Moses gave him this new name. Maybe it was early on. Maybe he saw something, and that's why he chose him. And from the very beginning, he saw this, this trust that he had in God. Or maybe it was after a time of testing. Because after he sent the 12 men in to explore the land, 10 of them came back and said, there's no way we can do this. It's impossible for us. But it was Joshua and Caleb who says, no, we can do this. And it was Joshua who tried pleading with them, rallying the troops. And he would say these words in Numbers chapter 14, if the Lord is pleased with us, he will lead us into that land, a land flowing with milk and honey and implied, and he will give it to us. Only do not rebel against the Lord. Do not be afraid of the people of the land because we will swallow them up. Their protection is gone, but the Lord is with us. Do not be afraid of them. He isn't saying, look, I've got the military prowess. I can take us in and we can do this. We have the manpower. We can do this. We have the technology. He says, no, it's the Lord. And maybe it was then that Moses saw in this man a faith in God. And he says, you're not Hosea. You're Joshua. Yahweh is your salvation. He had a big faith in God, but because of the lack of the faith of the people, he would spend 38 years in the wilderness with them. But then when he took over for Moses, there was this confirmation of his faith. I don't think in those 38 years in the wilderness that his faith diminished at all. In fact, if anything, it probably grew as he saw how God provided over and over again, as he saw the God that they served his faith just grew. And then when he took over, there was this word, these words that would affirm who God is and what God had for him that would build his faith even more. In Joshua chapter 1, verse 5, the Lord said to Joshua, um, no one will be able to stand against you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. This confidence, Yahweh is salvation, that's my name. I've seen this with Moses and he will be with me and he will not leave me. And so he goes with great faith. Now today we pick up in Joshua chapter 10. It's kind of related to last week's uh, episode that we looked at. In Joshua chapter 10, if you want to turn there in your, in your devices or your Bible. And I'll remind you of last week in case you weren't here. As they were going into the land, there was a group of people, the Gibeonites, the, the brothers Gibeon, and, and, and they were afraid of the Israelites, and they broke away from the federation of, of all of these Canaanites and, uh, and uh, all the different uh, tribes there and, and nations, and they kind of tricked their way into a treaty with Israel. They disguised themselves. They deceived and, and had this, this treaty, and so they entered in, and so Joshua had made a, a treaty with them and sealed it with an oath before the Lord that they would not kill the Gibeonites. And because of this, Israel was not pleased. I mean, that meant four cities that were supposed to be theirs that they wouldn't get the cities or the plunder of. And not only that, but these foreigners would be living with them now for hundreds of years. And it 
It's not just the Israelites weren't real happy with the Gibeonites, but the surrounding nations weren't either. These other kings felt like they had betrayed them, that they had, they had gone over towards the enemy side to try. And, and so there was this group of Amorites, five kings of the Amorites, and they said, we don't stand a chance against Israel, but let's take out the Gibeonites. They've left us. So these five kings of the Amorites, they march on Gibeon, and now they surround, they seize this town. And the men of Gibeon send a message to Joshua saying, help, help. Remember, we're your servants and we're going to die. And, and I wonder, I wonder if for a moment Joshua thought, hmm, I got tricked into this treaty. This is my off ramp. Because the treaty said we wouldn't kill them, but it never said we would defend them against their marauding brothers. This could be just the perfect way for us to get out of this thing. And then we can take on these Amorites and get these cities. But you see the integrity of Joshua. When he treats them as, as parts of, like a part of this Israel covenant community. He treats them like family. And so he goes up to Gibeon with some of his fighting men. And on the way up to Gibeon, the Lord speaks to him. Joshua chapter 10, verse 8 says this. The Lord said to Joshua, do not be afraid of them. That's the five kings of, of the Amorites. I have given them into your hand. Not one of them will be able to withstand you. I have given them. You're on your way up there. It's already done. I mean, you still have to go. But let me just tell you, I've already taken care of this. And Joshua believes him. This is the faith of Joshua. So Joshua and his men, his best fighting men, they march. You'll remember, no, you won't. I'll tell you that it was about 25 miles from, from Gilgal, where they had set up their home base, to Gibeon. And they decide to go under the cover of night, kind of a surprise attack. So Joshua and his men march all night, the 25 miles up to Gibeon, and they surround the, the kings and the, the armies of the Amorites. Well, the Amorites wake up in the morning, and they used to say the best part of waking up is the cup, but not that day. They wake up, and they are surrounded with these Israelites, and they're surprised, and they're confused, and they're defeated, and they run. Well, Joshua's not pleased uh, or, or satisfied just to have them flee. He continues to pursue them to finish the job. And as the Amorites are fleeing, they encounter a killer hailstorm. And when I say killer hailstorm, I mean that literally. Like these, these rocks of ice that came from the heavens began to destroy many of these Amorites. And Joshua continues to pursue them. And it's in this pursuit as he wants to finish this job, that we see his faith and we see this, this prayer of Joshua. In Joshua chapter 10, verse 12, it says this. On the day the Lord gave the Amorites over to Israel, Joshua said to the Lord in the presence of Israel. Joshua is speaking to the Lord. He says to the Lord, that's a prayer that we communicate with God. We talk with God. That's praying. And it's a public prayer. This isn't in his private prayer closet. He says to the Lord in the presence of Israel. So he's making this public prayer to God in front of everybody. And this prayer that he prays, it is, it is the most unusual, unconventional, unorthodox prayer, I think, of all scripture. It's weird. It's mysterious. It's enigmatic, and yet it's bold and audacious and daring. 
And it's short and it's like not any, like any prayer we've ever seen. This is his prayer. O sun, stand still over Gibeon. O moon, over the valley of Ijalon. I read that and say, Joshua, that's not how you pray. You're doing it wrong. Don't you know you're supposed to start our father and end in, in Jesus' name? I mean, you, I mean, it's, and you're talking to God, but you're not even talking about the situation. You're talking about like the sun and moon and they're coursing above. You're talking about the cosmos and, 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 and it's kind of a half prayer request that's impossible and half prophetic statement that's weird because you're talking to the sun and the moon, but you're talking to God in front of the people. It's just a weird prayer. And what follows it, the words that follow this in scripture have been the cause, a point of much discussion, disagreement, confusion, doubt, and faith. It's all over the map. So let me just read it. Verse 13. So the sun stood still and the moon stopped till the nation avenged itself on its enemies, as it is written in the book of Jashar. The sun stopped in the middle of the sky and delayed going down about a full day. There's never been a day like it before or since, a day when the Lord listened to a man. Surely the Lord was fighting for Israel. Now, I don't want to get high-centered on this, but I do think it's important that we address it. So you, you read a, a passage like that, and you think, okay, so okay, what's up with that? I mean, did that literally happen? Or is that poetic? Is that metaphorical? Is that kind of a, just kind of like um, figurative? And as I was preparing for this sermon, I mean, I dug into four or five, maybe even six different commentaries to see what do, what do scholars say about something like this? And it's all over the map. Someone say, well, of course, this is the word of God. It's literal. You got to read it. You got to believe it. And that's the way it happened. Others would say, no, it's very poetic. You know, it's, it's figurative. It's, 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 it's not literal. And those who would say, yes, it is literal. They would even go into all of these, you know, gyrations to try and explain it. It's maybe, maybe God just slowed things down but allowed it to keep going in real time. And so it just delayed. Or maybe there was this one that would explain that it was not necessarily that the sun stood still, but it was a refraction of the sun off of the clouds. And so it stayed light. And, and then there'd be talking about how in the beginning in Genesis creation account, God created light before he created the sun. Like when the angels showed up there in Matthew chapter two and the glory of the Lord shone round about them. It wasn't the sun. Maybe this was the Shekinah glory of the, all of these gyrations to try and explain this. And others would say, no, 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 no. You've got to use a scientific mind on this. Think about it. It's not even written right. The sun doesn't stand still. It's the earth that revolves around the sun. It's the earth that spins on its axis. The sun doesn't rise and fall. It's the earth. And if the earth stops spinning on its axis at 100,000 miles an hour, that would be catastrophic. I mean, if the earth stopped spinning right now, we'd all be slammed against that wall like that. And if the earth wasn't spinning on its axis, it might still be there, but it'd be like a knuckleball. And that's going to throw off the whole solar system, which might mess up the whole galaxy, which could destroy the whole cosmos. You can't look at it this way. So some of you right now are saying, okay, Pastor Bob, the one who breaks forth the word of God for us weekly, which is it, literal or figurative? And I want to tell you, I don't know. 
But somebody say, okay, I, I, okay, you don't know, but what do you believe? Well, let me tell you what I believe. I believe that there's a lot of things about God that I will never understand or be able to explain. I believe that God is big enough that if I could understand everything there was to be a, to, about God, he would not be a very big God. There are things I don't understand, but I believe. I believe in the Trinity. I don't understand it. I can't fully explain that to you. I believe in the virgin birth, and it goes against all kind of reproductive science. I believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, and that doesn't make any sense. I believe that God is the creator of all things, the heavens and the earth. And quite frankly, if that was seven days or seven nanoseconds or seven billion years, it does not change the creative power of God. I believe that God not only created the cosmos, I believe that God sustains it. As it says in Isaiah 40, when he calls out the stars by name and each one of them are in place because he holds it there. As it says in Colossians 1, that he holds all things together. And I believe that this God who has the power to create all of the cosmos, sustain it all in his hand, at his word, that that God who is omnipotent, all powerful, if he wanted to go against the natural laws of the universe that he created, his laws, he doesn't need my understanding, explanation, or permission to do that. That God is big enough to do all of that. And I also believe that we can get so high-centered on this little piece, is it literal or figurative, that we miss the point altogether. The reason that I've included this episode in this series and this is what I want us to get. Joshua prayed, God intervened. And you said, did he do that? And the answer is, yes, he did. Does he do that? Yes, he does. And that's what I want us to take away from this. Because so often we go throughout our life without bringing our stuff to God. I mean, we talk around this church about being a pray first, pray always church. We want to see prayer just increase. We want to see our faith increase. We want to see individuals growing in our prayer life and small groups and families in our church. I mean, we're working now on our 21 days of prayer and fasting that will be in January, that we do this every year for the last few years, just to collectively, to, to seek God. Because when we pray, God hears us. Some of us grew up in church. We sang that great old hymn. What a friend we have in Jesus, all our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear, all because we would not carry everything to God in prayer. See, I want for us to grow in prayer to be like Joshua, to have this kind of prayer, to continue. You know, some of you say right now, you say, well, but I'm not Joshua, and I'm not a man or woman of faith, and I, prayer is something I struggle with. Okay, can we, can we bring the bar down from Joshua, this, this great man of great faith and great prayer? What if we just had childlike faith, like Jesus said would be a good thing to start there? And what if we started with a childlike prayer? What, and what if we only did half of a child? I'm, I'm just trying to bring this bar down so we can all clear it. What if we all started with this little prayer? God is great. God is good. Forget about the food. Let's not get to that point yet. What if we just started saying, do I believe that God is great? Do I honestly believe that he's big? Do I believe that he's omnipotent? Can I trust him 
to be great and good. Because quite frankly, the size of our prayers reflect the size of our God. That maybe we say God is great, but deep down we don't pray like he is. And J.B. Phillips years ago wrote a book entitled, Your God is Too Small. And maybe our little small little prayers where we are afraid to ask for big things reflects that we have a small God. Now, the Apostle Paul writes to the church in Ephesus, and he writes about how, you know, all of God's eternal purposes are, are accomplished through Jesus, and in Jesus and through Jesus, we can now approach God, he says, with confidence and freedom, and because of who Jesus is, because of what Jesus has done, and on the heels of all that, when he explains all these eternal purposes of God and the, and the freedom that we have to approach God, he says to them and writes this out, for this reason, I kneel before the Father from whom his whole family in heaven and earth derives his name. And I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Out of his glorious riches. And I pray that you being rooted and established in love may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. He is praying a big prayer. These are the Ephesians. They're not Jewish. They've been far from God, and he's praying that they will have this understanding that surpasses understanding, that Christ will fill them, and they will have the fullness of God, that God's riches will be, bring all this to bear. And then at the end of that, this great doxology, he says in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20 and 21, he says, Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more, abundantly more, exceedingly more, than all we ask or imagine according to his power that's at work within us. To him be glory in the church in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. That he's able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. I think if Paul was from the South, he would say this. I'm Paul. And the problem with y'all is you pray too small or not at all. Because he's able to do exceedingly more. When we begin to pray for God's power, to do God's will for God's glory, then we can pray a big prayer. Years ago, um, Jim Collins and Jerry Porras wrote a book called Built to Last. It was the precursor to Good to Great, which was uh, huge in the business and leadership world. But in Built to Last, they were talking about corporations that, that had endured over the generations. And one of the, the aspects of this, it, it, there was this terminology that they used, um, and they did initials, B-H-A-G. It was referred to as a B-H-A-G, a B-H-A-G. And it said that these, these, these corporations that, that you know, broke through, they had this B-H-A-G, this big, hairy, audacious goal. Something that was scary, something that seemed almost impossible to reach, but it energized them and it, and it got them up every morning and, and they would continue to pour themselves into this. And I just wonder, if we're praying with God's power to do God's will for God's glory, if we shouldn't be praying behap prayers, big, hairy, audacious prayers, sun stand still kind of prayers like Joshua did. 
Because I don't think God is intimidated or insulted by our big, hairy, audacious prayers. If anything, he might be insulted because we don't see him as being able to handle some of the big things in life. We'll take care of this one ourselves, God. To pray like that. And all throughout scripture, the men and women who had great faith, they would pray big, hairy, impossible, audacious prayers. In Hebrews chapter 11, this chapter that's God's hall of faith, it just chronicles the men and women who had great faith, who trusted God, and God did incredible and impossible things in and through them. And Rahab happens to be one of the few women on that list as well. But in the midst of this, right early on in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, it says, and without faith, it's impossible to please God. Because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and, and, and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him to have this faith. And then he just goes on. You, you, some of you have read this. Read it for yourself. Hebrews chapter 11. He just lists off all of these people who did great things because they're big faith in a big God and they prayed audacious prayers. And I love, this is like my life verse, because he gets to this point where he says, oh, I don't have time to tell you. I'm like, I feel your pain, brother. Every week I say that. Oh, if I only had more time. That's, that's why it's my life verse. He says, I don't even have time to tell you about all how the kingdoms were conquered and how justice was administered and how they gained what was promised to them. And he just lists all these things off. And I just think, what, what if we had that kind of a faith? What, what if we had that kind of a a belief that our God is big and to come with a big faith and to pray for God's power to do the impossible for his glory. What if we prayed sun stand still kind of prayers? What if we prayed big, hairy, audacious prayers? What if we got to the point where we started praying, God, we know that you can do all things. We're gonna bring this to you. What if we started praying that for our kids and our families and our coworkers and our neighbors and our community and this church and our country and our world, what God might do See, I want us to grow. I want to grow. That our faith would increase and that our prayers would be bigger and that God would do incredible things. And that we would be people of great faith, big prayers, because we have a huge God and his power to do his will for his glory. Now, some of you might be saying, sounds good, Pastor. Story from Joshua's a bit unbelievable, but I'm hearing it. Sermon, you're getting all fired up. Kind of inspirational, a little. <laughs> Sun stands still prayers, hear what you're saying. But, but what about when the sun sets? What about when you pray sun stand still prayers and you slowly watch that sun go down. What about the times I pray, prayed big, hairy, audacious, impossible prayers for what I believed was God's will and for his glory, and it wasn't answered. And I believed God would do this. I prayed those prayers, and the kids kept drifting farther and farther from the Lord. I prayed those prayers and believed and the job didn't come through and the finances weren't there. I prayed those prayers and the disease wasn't healed and the cancer spread and the marriage was lost. I prayed those prayers. What about that? 
What about when we've prayed those prayers? So does God not work? Does prayer not work? Or maybe it works for everybody else. Maybe it's me. Hi, I'm the problem. It's me. Two of you got that. (laughs) Maybe I'm the issue here. Well, let me address that. In the book of Hebrews chapter 11 that I referred to, the first 35 verses tell about these great things that happen with these great faith and God's faithfulness. But the last five verses of that chapter tell a different story. And to be quite honest, when I was younger, I did not like these five verses. I felt like they ruined chapter 11 of Hebrews. I felt like they shouldn't be in there because it doesn't have always the happy ending that I want. And it seems in some ways to even negate what is said earlier in chapter 11. But to be honest, uh, the older I get, I would say mature, but that hasn't started happening yet. (laughs) But the older I get, having walked through some decades of life, and as a pastor, having walked through some dark valleys with some people, the more I appreciate these five verses and the more inspiring and encouraging they are to me. Hebrews 11, starting at verse 36, says, but some of them faced jeers and flogging, while still others were chained and put in prison. They were stoned. They were sawed in two. They were put to death by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains and in caves and holes in the ground. Look at this. They were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised. They prayed as well. They prayed sun's standstill prayers and they watched the sun set into the horizon. They prayed believing, they prayed with faith, they prayed impossible prayers for the power of God, for the will of God, for the glory of God and did not receive what they were promised. Yet they were commended for their faith. What if, what if they were committed to their faith, not because their faith got answers to prayer, but because their faith remained rock solid when the prayers were not answered? That God was not just a genie in the bottle to them, and prayer was not just a vending machine to give them what they needed when they needed it, but that they continued on. I want that for us as well. I want us to have big faith. I want us to pray big prayers. I want to see God do impossible things. And I want us to have an even bigger faith that continues to worship God and follow him and surrender to him and submit to him and and love him and be committed to him even when our prayers aren't answered when we think they should be or how we think they should be. That we would continue on and that we would be commended for our faith. In Daniel chapter three, there's that incredible story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We all saw it on the flannel boards growing up. 
And I love that statement when they're standing before Nebuchadnezzar. He says, if you throw us into the flames, the God we serve is able to save us. Big faith, big confidence. And the next statement is even more. But even if he does not, we're going to continue to serve him. You know, Pastor Kip talks about how we get worried about what if, what if, instead to have the confidence, even if, that's the deep faith. That passage in in Ephesians chapter uh, 3, verse 20, where it says, you know, that he's able to do immeasurably more, says, now to him be glory. What if, what if God gets an even greater glory by not answering that prayer? Would we still trust him to say, God, if you can be more glorified in my life for people to see that I remain faithful to you, steadfast on your solid foundation, even when things aren't going great? Because God is still working for his glory. To quote that song, even when I don't see it, he's working. And we may not fully understand it until the other side of eternity That's why I think Paul would write to the church in Corinthians, the Corinth church, 2 Corinthians. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we're wasting away, yet inwardly we're being renewed day by day. For our light momentary afflictions are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary. What is unseen is eternal. I know I'm taking this out of context, but I'll read this for you. Out of Matthew chapter 19, Jesus looked at them and he said, With man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. For us, I pray that we would have bold, audacious prayers a great faith in a big God who's able to do all things. I pray that we would pray for his power to do the impossible, that his will would be done and his glory would be magnified and that we would have even greater faith to continue to love and worship and celebrate and follow and submit to him if those prayers are not answered, that we would have that kind of faith. So the challenge Level up. Start praying like you believe in a big God and continue solid on the solid foundation that God's not a genie. He is the Lord our God. And prayer is not just a vending machine. It's a connection to our relationship with our eternal God that we would live in that kind of faith every single day.